0: Um. So many of you uh, start the evening by looking around the room to see if my wife is in the room, knowing that she does provide some kind of buffer from insanity. Um, she is not in the room. Uh, we are paying the price at a, at our ripe old age for all of our trips to Destin, um, and um, so she had numerous things um, sawed off of her. Uh, knows today, and so she um, um decided to take uh tried <laughs> she decided to stay in <laughs> this evening and hopefully she'll be um <clears throat> looking her gorgeous self uh come sunday um okay so we are back to galatians chapter four uh, i want to read you two verses which will be uh, kind of our um our discussion tonight but but they they're the language here is, is so interesting, um, and, and I hope will be profitable as we take a look at it closely. Uh, verse 8 and verse 9 of chapter 4. uh when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. That's what we're going to take a look at, but we're not going to exhaust or drain um, those two verses tonight. We'll come back to them and kind of wrap them up next week. But let me, let me point out a couple of things and something that I've pointed out numerous times before. But um, verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 4 uh, are somewhat of a, um, of a transition in the book of Galatians. Um, uh, he has, the, the Apostle Paul has concluded his argument uh, or his discourse on the doctrine of justification by faith, and now he closes this letter with an appeal for a certain kind of Christian conduct. Now, may I say, before he gets to those appeals, he has somewhat of a lengthy rebuke for the Galatians, in, which really starts in, um, in verses 8 and 9. But his, um, his discourse on justification by faith is over. So now we get this transition to the rebuke, which is fairly lengthy, certainly to the end of the chapter 4. And then with chapter 5, uh, you get this... Um, um, hey, Brent, there's another little um, writing uh, devices up here. Um, we have a board, but nothing with which to write on it. Uh, anyway, um, he, he uh, completes his Discord on Justification by My Faith... Then he rebukes his audience, and then he starts telling, or starts appealing to them. Oh, thank you, Jason. Uh, starts appealing to them uh, c- concerning their conduct. Now, gang, this is the thing that I've said to you on numerous occasions before. Here is a principle that you must get. Anybody that em- embraces and understands the gospel has got to get this principle. And, I, and I'll tell you why it's important in just a second. But the principle is simply this, that the indicative um, precedes, look at that. That's amazing. The indicative precedes the imperative. There's, that's the principle. And I have written it up here a dozen times. If that's confusing to you, let me give you the clearest illustration. The clearest illustration is found in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as you all know, is the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments, before there is ever a law given, which doesn't come until verse 3 or verse 2, the preface of the Ten Commandments is this. I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That is an indicative. I am the Lord thy God. That's who you are. I'm your God. You're my people. Then, with that settled, he moves on to the imperative and gives you the Ten Commandments. Guys, that is a fundamental gospel principle. Indicative always precedes imperative. You can never reverse that. You can never say, okay, if I do certain things, if I obey certain rules, then I'll become something. No, no, no. You become something and then you obey the rules, okay? And the reason I I, I point that out again, and I know some of you are tired of hearing it, um, is that you see it in in Pauline methodology. Paul writes his books with that principle in view. Um, he always starts his letters with a very lengthy treatment of the indicative. Before he ever gets to the imperative, before he ever says, do this, which he's going to do later in chapter 5 after the rebuke, before he ever tells you what to do, he tells you who you are. In the book of Romans, you have 11 chapters of indicative, the great doctrine of justification by faith beginning in chapter 3 and all the way through to chapter 5, the the doctrine of sanctification in chapters 6 and 7, the doctrines of God's sovereignty in chapter 9, and his dealings with Israel in 10 and 11. It is only after 11 chapters in the book of Romans that he then says I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that I just described to you in 11 chapters, I beseech you, based on those mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service of worship. Before he ever makes an appeal to Christian conduct, he tells you who you are. He does that in the book of Romans. He does it in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. All these enormously significant truths. He hath chosen us in him before the foundations of the earth. That's chapter one. All of this, this rich theology to tell you who you are. And then, in chapter four, uh, then he says, okay, now that we've got that all uh, settled and under your belt, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Before he ever urges you to walk anyway, he tells you for three chapters who you are. He does it in Romans, he does it in Ephesians, and he is doing it here in Galatians. He has spent three and a half chapters all the way through verse um, uh, 7 of chapter 4 telling you you are sons of God, all about that adoption stuff that I drove you crazy over. Uh, uh, You're sons, you're sons, you're not slaves. This is who you are, this is who you are. Let me tell you again, this is who you are. And then there's going to be this rebuke, as I said, a rather lengthy rebuke of the Galatians. And then he moves to the imperative. Gang, the principle of, is woven into Pauline methodology. Paul writes his books with this principle in mind, a principle that you've got to understand. The gospel is you become something before you do something. You are something before you obey something. You don't obey something so that you can become something. No, 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 no. You are something, and then you obey something. And that's what you see in this book, just like you see it in Romans, just like you see it in Ephesians, just like you see it in the book of Galatians. Verses eight and nine are transitional. They are moving you into this imperative because he's already spent three and a half chapters telling you about this. And then again, he's going to rebuke the Galatians because they're they're waffling. But then as chapter five opens up, he begins them he begins to tell them how to walk. And then you go to chapter six and you get all that fruits of the spirit stuff and all that business, you remember? But his books, his writing methodology reflects that principle. And guys, you do not understand the gospel if you do not understand this. This is the gospel. The gospel is we become something before we do something. And so you see it in his writing. That's, that's all I'm trying to say. This is a, this somewhat of a A transition as he moves to, before he gets to the imperative, he's going to rebuke them rather soundly, and we'll look at that in the coming weeks. But um, his discourse on the doctrine of justification by faith alone is over. Now he's going to move to how he wants to see them live. But he's got to do this first, and he's done that. Because, guys, that's the gospel. You tell people who they are. You tell them what they've become because of grace. And then you tell them to go live a a certain way. But you don't tell them to live a certain way until you tell them about the beauties and the excellencies of sovereign grace. Okay? Now, now, that under our belts, I want you to look at verse eight with me. Formerly, when you did not know God, (laughs) I love this stuff. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, ladies and gentlemen, how can you be enslaved to something that doesn't exist? Happens all the time. He says, "Uh, you know, uh, before, you know, back when you weren't Christians, uh, you didn't know God. And you were enslaved to something that doesn't exist. (laughs) That's not the, you're, you're, you were enslaved to those that are not gods. How does that happen? Well, that's what I want to illustrate. That's what I want to explain tonight. How in the world we get enslaved to things that don't even exist. (laughs) Um, Now, first of all, notice guys, uh, Formerly, when you did not know God, look at what he says, you were wrong. No, he didn't say that. You were unhappy. He doesn't say that. Uh, You were uh, disjointed. He doesn't say that. He says, formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved. Gang, um, I I could take our time to do this. I won't. But he he uses that same slave imagery in chapter 3, verses 23 and following. Chapter 4, verses 1. Uh, verse 1, uh, vor, uh, here in, in 4, 9, he uses it again. He uses it in chapter uh, 4, uh, verse 3. This idea that if you are not a Christian, then ultimately you are enslaved. He's mentioned that at least four times. Now, gang, I know you don't remember this, but months ago, I mean months ago, I, I was, uh, I was, we were talking about grace, and I posed this question to you. I said, if you had to come up with a synonym, a word that you think adequately summarizes grace, what one word would you use? And there were some suggestions, and they weren't good suggestions, they weren't, they weren't bad, they weren't Stupid. They weren't ignorant, you know. uh, uh, But they're not the one that I would have used. And I wrote up here one word that I said summarized grace. Now, you may not remember what word I wrote up here, but I'm going to write it up here again, and I'm going to write it slow so this board maybe can read it. This is the word that I wrote. Look at there. Got that. I said months ago that the one word that I would use as a, as a, not an exhaustive synonym, but an appropriate synonym for grace is the word freedom. Gang, um, freedom. Freedom is the result. No, it's the fruit of Christianity and Christianity only. Now, you mark that down. And and that's what I'm going to explain in my next 20 minutes. Freedom is the fruit of Christianity only. Now, again, notice he just said... You guys, back when y'all weren't Christian, didn't know God. You were enslaved. I'm saying that there's only one way to be unenslaved. There's only one way. There's only one way to be unenslaved. And I, and I, I hope you'll see that before, the, before we leave here tonight. Now, guys, I want you to look at something. Uh, look at verse 3 of chapter 4. In the same way also when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. See that? He uses that same phrase in verse 9. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? You see that? Now, guys, the situation in Galatia was that these folks had come to town to tell them, yeah, you got to have Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to obey the law of Moses if you ever intend to be saved. They were called Judaizers, all right? They were adding to the gospel. Now, here's my, here, here's my point. you got to think a little bit. Why doesn't Paul say, in verse three of chapter four, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the law? Why doesn't he say that? Why does he go, why does he say, the elementary principles of the world? And why didn't he say, well, over here in verse nine, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. Why does he use that language? Why didn't he just say, why do you guys keep turning back to the law? Why, 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 why does he need to say that? It saved him some ink. But guys, he doesn't use law. Okay, stay with me. Because he's writing to Gentiles who never had the law. Okay? He's writing to a group of people who wouldn't have understood law because they never had law. That was something that only Judaism had. They never had law. But guys, here's the point. You gotta get this. To forsake the doctrine of justification by faith alone always takes you to some form of law. The only other option that exists besides the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone is some form of law. So these Gentiles, whether they knew the Ten Commandments or not, didn't matter. I didn't know there was an Exodus 20, says those Gentiles. I didn't know about all that. It doesn't matter because they were just as enslaved to the law. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, if you forsake a message of pure grace as summarized in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you end up in some form of law-keeping, oftentimes that law-keeping being a law of your own making, which enslaves you to a God that does not exist. Gang, defecting from the gospel does three things. It enslaves you, it turns you into an idolater, and you create some form, some plan of self-salvation by performance, by law. First of all, that's why he uses elementary principles of the world and not the law. Because ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, apart from Christ, everything's law. If if you defect from a gospel, a simple, pure gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone, then you end up enslaved, an idolater, and one who has come up with his own self salvation project that he defines himself. Gang, do you do you get that? I mean, because I, I mean, if, if you would like a, a like a, an illustration uh, of that, then let me give you one from my own life. Gang, um, raised in the church, as you know, some of you know, uh, went to off to school on a baseball scholarship, thinking that I was God's gift to members of the opposite sex um i was i was uh, um misinformed um <laughs> but ever so slightly um <laughs> but uh you know i told you in, in the new members class if you've ever gone to the new members class i've told you that i walked to church in the snow and after a drunken brawl at the SAE house uh, you know, I you know I was a good boy. Spoke to the FCA. Yada 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 yada. Married my little life, my little wife, who's now paying for her escapades in the sun. Um, I'm still married to that woman, and um, uh, we moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and we started looking for a church. And we found this church, and uh, came, went to church on a Sunday and on and on a Thursday. We get a ding dong at the front door of our apartment, and it's the preacher of this church where we visited. And he, his name happened to be Jim Kennedy, a name that some of you recognize. Uh, uh, Jim Kennedy, uh, the, the author of Evangelism Explosion. Well, Jim Kennedy shows up in my, in my apartment and, um, and asks me, you know, um, uh, what I would say to God if I were to die. You know, and I stood before him. And I gave him this huge shot, John, about what a nice person I was. And then I spoke for the FCA. And here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. When Jim Kennedy entered my apartment that night, I already had a savior. I didn't need the one he was offering because I already had one. And who might that have been? Me. I said to you a moment ago, I said, if you defect from the gospel, three things happen. You're enslaved. You're an idolater. Ladies and gentlemen, the fundamental sin of the entire non-Christian world is the sin of idolatry. They are worshiping a God that does not exist. Except in their own imagination. And you are forced then to come up with some kind of self-salvation project. And mine was well underway when Jim Kennedy visited my apartment and Susie and I first heard the gospel. Guys, if you abandon a simple gospel, faith in Christ and his finished work and that alone, if you tamper with that, You become an idolater, you are enslaved, and you are praying to a God that does not exist. look, look um, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those uh, that by nature are not gods. You're a slave, and the thing to which you are a slave to is doesn't even exist. It only exists here. Just like mine. I had my own... I was my own savior. They were idols of my own making. And it looked a whole lot like me. Because I was going to save myself. Listen, guys. The God who exists will be and can be known in only one way. Through Christ and him alone. You know this statement in John 1. um, It says, um, no one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Gang, listen. There is no real difference between a Jewish unbeliever and a Mormon unbeliever and a Muslim unbeliever. All of them are seeking to to gain some kind of reward through their performance. And when you defect from the gospel, you become a slave, you become an idol worshiper, and you devise your own self-salvation project. Just like Islam, just like Judaism, just like Mormonism. There is no real difference between unbelievers in any of those cults. You know, guys, um, when I did those two little nights on is the God of Islam and the God of Christianity the same God? And if, in case you weren't here, the answer to that is no, <laughs> they're not. But we've we've, we've settled that, and uh, it's all online for you to listen to. But the question that I got probably a dozen times is some, some version of this. Then who are they praying to? Well, I can tell you that the Muslims are praying to the God who spoke to Muhammad, who would be the devil. Well, what about the Jews? I won't go quite that far. I can simply say this. They are praying to a God that does not exist. Because here's what they tell their constituency. We want you to meet God. And the God who is, is a God who rewards obedience to the Ten Commandments with heaven. That God does not exist. God will be and can be known only through Christ. So I don't know who you're praying to, but according to verse eight here, it seems that you're praying to something that by nature are no gods, are not gods. Um... If you go to the God that you have conceived of and say, the way that I'm going to be righted with you is through my performance, you are praying to a God that you created and a God that does not exist and ultimately your real Savior is you which makes you an idolater. Because this God is only known one way, through Jesus Christ, and it is only through Christ that I am set free from that enslavement. Let, let, let me let me try to illustrate it another way. This this story takes place in Matthew chapter 22. It's a good story. Uh, you know, that they, they come to Jesus and they try to trick him with some questions. You remember that? And the first question they have is the question of, um, you know, do we pay taxes, you know, to Caesar and, you know, Jesus handles that one. And those guys kind of run off. And then, and then the other one comes up and they says, um, you know, you know, there was this guy, you know, he's married uh, seven times and, uh, Um, you know, uh, no, no, excuse me. It's a woman that was married seven times. She had seven husbands and they all died and and none of them uh, left any children behind. Now, uh, when they they get to heaven, um, uh, who's going to be her husband? And Jesus said, well, you got that wrong too. And they kind of trickle away. And then the other guy comes up and he says, um, oh, it's the Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. The Sadducees come and they say, um, um, okay, Jesus, (laughs) You think you're smart. Okay, how about this? What's the foremost commandment of all? And you remember what Jesus says. Jesus says, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish establishment, the Jewish theologian says, right. You got it right. You remember what Jesus says? He says, um, "You know, you're not far from the kingdom, but um, you ain't in. But you ain't far from it, right?" Uh, okay, we get that. We got that, Jesus, because um, that's what we're teaching our people. Yes, sir, Bobby, we're teaching our people that you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's that's what that's what Judaism stands for. We're all for that. But ladies and gentlemen, the big problem is you haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength for 30 seconds in your entire life. Just because God commands it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to do it. And the facts are, I haven't done it. I haven't done it for 30 seconds Strung together in my entire life. Now, the gospel comes in with recognition of that failure and says, in light of your failure, you need a righteousness that doesn't belong to you, a righteousness that somebody earned for you. Of course, that's the gospel. Um, because that righteousness, of course, is the alien righteousness, is the righteousness of Christ um, imputed to us. You got all that, I hope. But here's, here's, here's the, the point that I'm trying to make Judaism tells its audience that the foremost commandment of all is to love of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. And that commandment that they t- that they teach and that they that they hope in instead of justifying them condemns them and so i go off to pray to a god that doesn't exist living a life to save me that won't work, enslaved to elementary principles that I wrote, that I wrote up myself. All of that is a result of defecting from a simple gospel. Guys, listen to this, and with this I'll quit. This is a quote from Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Don't look. I got it written right here. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I said to you earlier there is only one freedom to be had. It's a freedom given to me by the gospel. If I defect from that gospel, I I, I head to some kind of elementary principles of the world seeking to save myself by them and I am condemned by my own efforts Praying to a God that doesn't exist in a hopeless pursuit of reconcil- be recon- being reconciled to God. This text says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Oh, you, you failed the great commandment, all right. So don't use that path for righteousness. That ain't gonna work. Christ is the end of that. He is the end. End of the law for righteousness. For whom? To all who believe. And then I'm set free. (laughs) There's only one way to be set free, ladies and gentlemen, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're enslaved, you're an idolater. And you've got some form of trying to save yourself by your performance. There's not a shred of difference between a Jewish unbeliever, a Muslim unbeliever, and a Mormon unbeliever. They're all trying to do the same thing. And they're all enslaved. They're all idolaters. And they're all trying to save themselves by some kind of law-keeping, some kind of performance. Only Christianity offers freedom and an end to all that. Our Father, I I do pray that you'll make that abundantly clear to the the listeners that we might, that, that there might be a hallelujah on the inside of our souls knowing that we're done with that. We're done with that foolishness that we thought looked so religious when in fact it was nothing but enslavement. An enslavement that forced me to become an idolater and worship me as my own savior. So Father, thank you for the, the blessedness of the gospel, the, um, the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to any and all who believe. We thank you, Father. Father for a wonderful message like that. And we pray, of course, in Jesus' name.